praise the Lord for you guys and your presence with us today. If you don't know who I am, I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Church, and I am so excited to see your faces today, uh, particularly because last week I was watching a video and, because I had COVID. And um, yeah, man, it's such a blessing to gather with God's people. Sometimes I miss hearing the voices just behind me or even the ones on stage, and I find so much encouragement when the collective gather together and we worship God together. Amen or oh me. And so today, I just want to just acknowledge how good God has been in my life, and I pray he has been just as good in your life. If you would stand with me, um, if you're not standing, if you can, if you're able, um, and just open your Bibles up or your app up to Philippians 2. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from God's Word, and we're going to pray, and then I'm going to jump right in. I do want to give a shout-out to Pastor Richard um, for filling in for me last weekend um, as you're getting there. Um, thank you, brother. Uh, you inspired me to wear a hat just because I'm petty, uh, mostly. Because <laughs> I was like, if he can do it, I can do it, surely. Um, but also, you preached your butt off last week, man, last minute, man. And so I appreciate you, bro. Um, so hopefully I can, yeah, encourage you as well. Starting at verse 1 in Philippians 2, we're going to read to verse 4, um, though we're going to spend the bulk of our time on verse 4. Let me read God's word for the people of God. It says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Amen. Let's pray with me. You can, sit, you can be seated as I pray. Father, we are grateful for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Grateful for your gospel, which has redeemed those who have placed their trust in it. God, I pray, Lord, that you would be with me today. <sighs> Father, I'm carrying a lot in my body. I feel it already. And God, I need your grace. I need your goodness. Even in my own story, Father, I need to know that I am not my grief. I am not my sorrows. I am yours. So, Father, encourage our hearts today through your word. Encourage us, Lord, to see one another, experience one another, but ultimately experience you through one another. So, Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' almighty name. Amen. Let the church say amen. All right, y'all got to understand, this is Black History Month. I expect you at least to be a little bit more expressive, amen? Come on, y'all, help me out. Um, When I was in preschool, um, we had this Junior Olympics. And I remember we had a race, and one of the events was like a sprint race. And I remember, man, thinking, man, I'm the Flash. Like, you know, when you're in preschool, you think you're a superhero. So I'm like, like, I'm the Flash. I'm about to dust all these jokers, Amen. We lined up, and uh, yeah, and the whistle blew, and I took off, and I was dusting them jokers. Man, I was on. I was gone, bro. But I noticed as I was gone, as I was fixing my eyes on the, on the, on the finish line, I, I looked to my left, and there was this other kid, and he had me by a couple of strides. And if you're in a 40-yard dash, a couple of strides feels like a couple of miles, amen, or oh, me. And I just knew I wasn't going to win this race. I was already facing my defeat. 
but God and came in the form of a stumbling block and this kid tripped over his feet. And he ain't just trip regular, you know what I'm saying? This boy went boom. I'm like, you heard it, you know what I'm Like, it, it jarred us. Everybody was like, ooh, you know what I'm saying? All the parents were like, ooh, you know, I was like, dang, bro. And then, you know, for a second when I looked over to the left as he was falling, I felt like, man, I should help this kid. I was like, nah, forget that, man. I'm about to win this race. I'm about to get my blue ribbon. I've been waiting on this blue ribbon. And I love that blue ribbon for about a week. Amen. Like most kids do with toys. And I was proud of myself. I was proud of my accomplishments. As a child, I wasn't willing to give up my prize to help this other child, right? I was more concerned with my interest than his. It was all about me. It was all about my ambition. I know some of y'all in here, y'all judging me. I heard y'all. I heard y'all. I heard. I can see it in your faces. But some of y'all lying to yourselves because you would have done exactly the same thing I did. Amen? But whether you're judging me, whether you're high-fiving me, like, man, you did the right thing, Mo. Amen? We are all faced with these types of choices. We are all having to make a decision. Are we willing to put aside our own interests for the interests of others? Amen? Will you be concerned for someone else's welfare as much as you are for your own? Or will you only look out for yourself? Is life about you winning the race and that, that's it, right? Or is it helping others get to the finish line? We are goal setters by nature. Most of us don't realize it, that we set goals all the time. But here's the thing. Some of us think the goal in our lives is to fix our eyes on our prize. And we miss that life isn't about self-improvement alone, but how you can help others get better. This is a challenge for some, right? Because we weren't raised like that, right? We, we were raised in a society, maybe even a household, where you were forced to think that you have to be winning or you're losing. But here's the problem with that. We don't realize that when other people are losing in life, that is not what winning is. Here's the thing what the Bible teaches. It says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The Bible also helps us see if, 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 if one of us wins, then we all win. It's when the I becomes a we. Christianity is a team sport. Our lives are woven together as a church, and if one of us is thriving, it helps us all thrive. That's the inescapable reality that is produced when we look to the interests of others. Here's what I'm getting at today, y'all. Loving the church is loving yourself. Caring for the we is caring for the why. Two things I want you to grasp today is that you need to be cared for, amen? And that you need to care for others. Our text today is just one verse, so let's start kind of getting an idea of where Paul's going with this. This letter was written by Paul, right, to the church of Philippi. He established this church. Actually, he established uh, when he met a, name, a woman named Lydia, and he actually established this church in, in, in her house. And they had a very close relationship, and he had a very close relationship with this church. They had a love-love relationship. And you see that throughout how Paul is addressing them through this book. Paul wrote this letter thanking them for their care. He also wrote it to encourage them, to warn them. And one of the most important encouragements that Paul gives this church is to stay faithful and continue to be unified in their efforts to preach the gospel, despite opposition, despite persecution. When we get to chapter 2, Paul is looking for evidence that God's grace has actually impacted this church. He wants to know how it's impacted their lives together. See, the legitimacy of their encounter with Christ is evident through their love for one another. I hope y'all heard what I just said. 
the legitimacy of their relationship with the Lord, the, their, their experience with the gospel is, is, is found and it's evident by their love for one another, them coming closer to each other, them loving on one another. Their lives should, should be full of the, the if, if their lives are full of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit and through the gospel, this should be bringing them closer together as one. There should be unity in their mindset and in their purpose. Their hearts should be knit together as one. Here's the problem, though. The killer of unity is the absence of love. The killer of community, the, the killer of unity is the absence of love. People have competing agendas. When people put their desires ahead of each other's desires, they fight what? to get their way, right? That's what we do. When we have competing desires, we fight to get our way. That's what John, James 4 says. And what does competing agendas do? They cause us to fight, right? We push each other away. We sabotage our relationships. People become more suspicious of, of people's intentions, right? We start to accuse one another. And eventually, what do we do? We leave and we label the church an unsafe place. We go all bad on each other and there's no possibility for repair, is there? How many of you guys have left churches angry and upset? And how many of you gone back there to try to repair the relationship? That's the reality of the church, right? But here's the thing. God's desire is that we are unified, that we don't fight each other, but we fight for unity. And there is, that there's unity and there's harmony as we work together. Progress happens when we stop competing against each other and start to complement one another. It was this quote I heard the other day, and I love this quote, and it said, being part of a vision bigger and beyond ourselves frees us to complement each other rather than compete with each other. Paul urges us in verse 2 to be unified. In some versions it says to have one mind or to have the same mind. This doesn't mean that we have just the same thoughts and ideas. There's not uniformity. There's unity and diversity. But here's the thing, we ought to have the same values and ambitions. Ideas and thoughts become alive through our values and ambitions. It becomes our culture. We have a collective identity which is expressed by our values and ambitions. We are a people with a culture. We are to have the same values and ambitions that Jesus has. To care for one another. To seek justice. To what? To redeem the lost. Cornerstone. This is why we have a vision script for that purpose. This is why we, we prayed and fasted for the month of January. This is why we're preaching through these core values so that our hearts would be aligned with one another, that we would form a collective identity so that we would be in lockstep with one another as we pursue the mission of Christ. Y'all know what I mean by lockstep, right? As soldiers march, what do they do? you left, you left, you left, right, left. They're moving in unison with one another. And so here's the thing. Today's core value is intentional margin. And it reads like this. We believe people are more important than what they can contribute. We strive to lovingly prioritize the comprehensive health of people for the betterment of our church. A commitment to simplicity over busyness allows us to do a few things great instead of many things good. Loving the church is loving yourself. God is calling you to care for one another, to help one another thrive so we can live out our mission. Verses 3 and 4 tells us how we get there. In verse 3 and 4, he tells us how not to live and how to live. In verse 3, he's saying, don't be motivated by selfishness and conceit. Don't live a self-centered life, a life revolving around your goals 
or a life trying to elevate yourself and your status. This will kill unity in the church. People become a means to accomplish your dreams. A life revolving around your goals is, is, is self-centered. It's, it's focusing on what you can do and only what you can do. And you only surround yourself with people who elevate your status. It's when you focus on trying to platform yourself and gain followers. And it sounds like we're living in the social media dream, not Christ's dream. You crave influence. You believe, God's, you're, you believe that you're God's gift to the church. In verse 3, he tells us that hum- humility is the main ingredient to a unified church. That humility is the main ingredient to the stew that's in the pot of the church. Humility is what fuels our, our unity with one another. I mean, uh, humility is what fuels our unity with one another. Humility is when we lower yourself like Christ did for the good of the collective, the church, his body, his people. The first part of verse 4 says this, everyone should, not look, everyone should look not to his own interest. So what I'm getting at is you need to be cared for. And that might sound weird after what I just read. You, need, you don't need to look to your own interest because people are caring for you too. That's what I'm getting at. Think about this. When somebody asks you how you're doing, what's your typical response? Amen, you lie. I'm glad some of y'all tell the truth. Amen. We lie, right? The other week, a sister saw me leaving out of the sanctuary, and I won't say her name because I don't want to, uh, you know, misspeak what she said, but I texted her about it to see if I had permission to share it. But when I, when she, when I was leaving out of the sanctuary, she was like, hey, Pastor Mo, how are you doing? And what was the typical answer that I, I gave, right? I'm fine. And she looked at me, and she had some courage. And she was ready today, amen? She had, she had time today, amen, for me. And she said, you're not doing fine. How could you be? And when she said that, I looked at her. And I, and I stopped for a second because from that moment, she gave me the freedom to be honest. To, to, to reflect and consider that I was not okay. When somebody asks you how you're doing, are you honest with them? The question has to, to the ability to expose how dishonest we truly are, right? Amen? The greatest lie we tell ourselves is what? That we're doing just fine that we're okay. You pretend as if you're unaffected by life, that emotionally, spiritually, and physically, you are just fine. We try to sweep our grief. We try to sweep our struggles. We try to sweep, sweep our pain under the carpet like a child who's trying to hide his dirty laundry from his parents. Why do you hide your pain? Why do you hide your suffering? Why do you hide your struggles? Is it because you don't want to disrupt your peace? that you're in denial, or the harmony of your relationships? Are you afraid of what others will think? Are you scared of rejection? Do you believe the lie that you're supposed to be able to carry this load by yourself? Are you defeated and you live in shame? Is there shame surrounding your pain and your suffering? For many people in this room, I know you live in a cycle of perpetual shame. That doesn't allow safe people to come into your life with safe hands to care for you. We all need the freedom to be honest, don't we? To feel safe enough to tell the truth about ourselves. When you don't feel this freedom, my people, and the safety to be honest, you rob yourself of the opportunity to receive care. Not just from others, but from God. Because God's way of caring for you is through his people. 
in this text, you might think it's all about what you should do for others. When we look at imperatives in the Bible, that's the constant thing we do in our mind, how we can meet the mark, how we can do something for God, right? But sometimes to understand a text, you have to look at what's not being said and what's being implied. The reason why you don't have to be concerned with your own interests is because it's implied that you are part of the collective we of the church. That your interests should be looked after just as much as anyone's. And I'm not saying to be selfish, but I'm saying the tendency for many of us in this room is to neglect ourselves and don't take time to process the pain in our lives. Many people aren't honest with themselves, with their families, with their friends. Amen or oh me. Many of us don't feel like we have great support systems. Part of being a part of a church means you're being cared for. Everybody's cared for, and that includes you. Paul is describing gospel humility, the type of humility that is produced by the Holy Spirit, which is when we display in our lives a Jesus-like humility, which means you are honest about your pain and invite others to care for you. You hear what I'm saying, church? Man, look at Jesus' life. Just before he went to the the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus invites his disciples to see and respond to his suffering. Let's read this verse. Let's take this in for a second. Verse 38 says, and I want you to take this in. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What is Jesus describing in your own words? How would you define what Jesus is saying to his his people? Have you said these words? I'm depressed. I'm lonely. I feel so much anxiety in my life right now. Jesus is experiencing all these emotions, and he's honest with his disciples about them. And look what he does. He makes a request from them. He says, stay here and keep watch with me. Notice Jesus' transparency and openness to care. Jesus models for you and I what it looks like to invite others to to care for you in your struggles and your suffering, to invite them to bring you care. Let me ask you this. And I want y'all to consider this because I think it's important about what you think about spiritual maturity and spiritual development, right? Have you considered being Christ-like means being vulnerable and asking for care? Is that in your peripheral of what it means to be a mature Christian? That you can be honest about where you at with, with in life and you can, be off, you can be open to people giving you care and offering you care. This is a sign of maturity as a believer when you can fully embrace where you are at. You can move towards others and, and allow them to embrace your brokenness. What I'm saying is scary, isn't it? Amen, oh me. What I'm saying is not easy. We all can fool ourselves and, and be dishonest. But here's the thing. We all need to be cared for, don't we? I'm looking around the room and I see pastors and I see leaders and we all fall into this trap. We can spend all of our time looking to the needs of others and not to our own needs for care. We can be dishonest. We can live out of the narrative, I'm supposed to care for others and not be cared for. Here's the thing, being cared for opens us up into vulnerability. And most of us, when we are honest about where we're at in life, It makes us feel weak, doesn't it? And nobody wants to feel weak. The gospel should be producing in us a a, a humility that should give us the boldness and the the honesty to be vulnerable where you're at and the courage to invite others in. 
Intentional margin at Cornerstone looks like this. There is an awareness of your need for care and a willingness to receive it. The text says, the, it uses this word look. And, and this word is not just a glance, but it's, it's staring intently, right? That you are fixing your eyes on a goal or a finish line. We, we are to fix our eyes on the interest of others. The goal in life of a church is to make sure that everyone is cared for well. To take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on one another. To heal together so that we might live for Jesus. You might feel like I'm asking too much, right? I ain't gonna lie, that, that could be asking a lot of you. You might feel like I'm forcing you to expose yourself to strangers. You might feel like I'm asking you to harm yourself because there's been harm in this area done to you before. Please know I don't want that for you. If I could want anything for you, I want you to feel seen. I want you to feel known. Not, I don't want you to be missed anymore. I want you to live in freedom. I, I want you to, to live the way you were created to live. You were created to be known and seen. Think about the Garden of Eden. Not the Garden of Gethsemane, but the Garden of Eden. Where you were, you were fully exposed, naked and unashamed. You were not made to hide. Not from God's eyes or other people's eyes. When God sees your suffering or your struggles, he doesn't look at you with disgust or contempt or nor condemn you. He offers you care and help. That is the gospel. When he saw us in our sin, he didn't turn from us. He turned towards us. How dare we turn away from those who are suffering, who are struggling, because it's inconvenient for you to hear their pain. How dare we not be honest with ourselves and give opportunity for God to do his work through his church by being honest about our pain. The gospel restores us. It gives us the ability to stand before each other, fully accepted and fully loved by God. Many of us in here are walking around with so much. We're carrying a lot in our bodies. We are, we're carrying so much and, and trying to carry it on our own. You were saved into a family that is supposed to care for you. I always tell my kids this. I tell my, my, my boys this. I am your dad. I'm supposed to care for you. You're supposed to bring all of your mess, all your ugliness to me, and I will love on you, and I'll fully accept you, and fully love you. That's what makes us want to, 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 to join churches. It's people who are sitting here willing to accept the most ugliest parts of us. What makes us run away from them is people who are just judgmental and hypocrites. That's what Galatians 6 2 tells us, to carry one another's burdens in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Church is not just about one person healing, but a place where we all find healing and we heal together. God wants you to feel seen and experience his care. The way God cares for you is through the family. This should be a place of healing, not harm. The church should be a place where you find the, the support you need, where you find kind, loving, and honest people. A place where everyone brings their burdens and not feel that this isn't the place that they can bring that stuff. That there's not space for them to bring this stuff. We are supposed to make space for everybody. That's what humility is trying to produce in Cornerstone. It's trying to produce in all of us a willingness to take a risk, to let other knows, others know what is really going on in, in our lives. Family, we can't become the church we want if we don't get, the, the, we don't get in each other's mess, in each other's lives. Amen? So much of our church culture is built on what? Around showing up and pretending to be something you're not. Folk dressing up, looking clean, and, but you're really a mess inside. Amen? So much of our culture has been uh, built on people trying to keep their hands clean and not getting in the messiness of each other's lives. So much of our church culture is causing harm and not healing. I get it. No one wants to be a mess. 
No one wants to cause harm, but that brings shame sometimes, doesn't it, right? Even the most godly people in Scripture, their lives were messy. Let's look at an example. Let's look at Paul's life. Paul was thanking this church for being involved in his mess. Paul had enough drama for four lifetimes, didn't he? Amen? We call him the super Christian, right? Count it all joy when you face trials from every side. And we look at Paul's life. He was just as needy and messy at times. Amen? Paul was a murderer before he became a Christian. Amen? He was arrogant. Just think about this. There's somebody who just murdered your cousin, your brother, your uncle, your, 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 your sister, comes and says, now I'm your brother. How messy is that? That's too much sitcom like. You know what I'm saying? Amen? It's like an episode of Power or something like that. Amen? But you think about his life after a Christian, uh, being a Christian. Um, he was beaten several times and left for dead. He was publicly whipped. He, he's been in jail multiple times. He was shipwrecked. So, I mean, his ride was messed up. Amen? And he had beef with John Mark. And he's currently in prison. And he needs, he needs money at the time. That boy ain't had no money on his commissary. If we look at Paul's life, it doesn't look like a life anyone would chase after, right? His life had the potential of bringing him shame, but Paul didn't relish or live in shame, at least not for very long, because he knew the gospel. One of the guys who discipled me always used to say to me, so, so every time we would come to a place where we would meet together, we would get across the table, he would always tell me, Mo, Christ died to take away your shame. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, right? Jesus came, endured a shameful death of a criminal, that, 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 he, that we would no longer live in shame. He was flogged, mocked, and made a spectacle. By being put on a cross, he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. He, he broke the curse so we would no longer have to identify with our sin or brokenness, but as his children and as heirs, that we have we have the ability to live free of condemnation and contempt. There is freedom in Christ, and that freedom is from shame and contempt, from the accuser as well. The, the gospel helps us know that we are not our brokenness. We are not our struggles. Christ died so that our identity would be rooted in him, not in our struggles. Cornerstone, I'm going there because I sense a reluctance, to be honest. That many of us in our church are not as honest as we are about who we really are. There are so many people struggling, so many people doing harm to themselves and not getting the care that they truly need. People living in shame. The gospel is about restoration and wholeness. God has empowered his church to restore one another and with what? A spirit of gentleness, of kindness towards one another. God's work through us is to help one another through the rough waters of our hearts, to create safety, to minister to one another, to experience healing so that Jesus will be worshiped and exalted through our church. If we're not healing, then we're not going anywhere fast. Broken people do not make a great impact without moving towards healing. We've got to be moving towards that church. I'm not saying God doesn't use broken people because he does all the time. But what we need to understand that the greatest impact that we will have on, on our community in this world is when people start to see us Inviting one another to help each other heal. The church has to care for itself. He uses all of us to help one another experience healing in the power of Jesus and the gospel. 
Listen, God needs you to care for others too. You need to care for others. The mark of a Christian is Christ-like humility. Caring for others produces Christ-like character in you. The last part of this text says, but rather to the interests of others. Recently, I saw an interview with Magic Johnson talking about when he first joined the Lakers. And he was talking about his relationship with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I was astonished by this interview because, you know, everybody knows when he first got to the league, Magic Johnson, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not not very fond of him, amen? I mean, who would, brother? The brother says throwed, and he uses words wrong, amen, all the time, amen? But no, but really, the honest truth was, man, Kareem just was annoyed by his style of play. He didn't buy into it. And then when Magic Johnson was asking this interview, he said, man, how, how receptive was Kareem to you, right? He said he wasn't. He wasn't at all. But one time he came to Kareem and asked him, man, when you're in the post, where do you want the ball? The cream looked at him and was like, what do you mean? He said, do you want it high? Do you want it low? Do you want it with your left hand? Do you want it in your right hand? And Kareem looked at him and was like, I want it high. But here's the thing. Magic Johnson's response was this. You'll get it there every time. Magic had good reason to be concerned with Kareem's success. He wanted him to thrive. He wanted Kareem, the El Capitan, to win another MVP and a scoring title, right? Because he knew Kareem's success was vital for his success. The team's success, because they were the Showtime dynasty, and they went on to win five championships. That's the proof. Here's what I want you to believe. Here's what I want you to grasp, that your victory is tied to other people's victory. That the church does not win unless the I becomes the we. If we're going to fulfill the purpose that God has given us as a church, it's contingent on the health and success of one another. We have a responsibility to one another to make sure that we're all getting to the finish line. We prepare one another to meet Jesus. Intentional margin is about us all winning, not sacrificing people for the sake of our ambitions. Though the church is going places, we don't want to see that no person left behind or no one lost. That's the hope, is that we're moving in unison together. You might be limping, but a brother's there or a sister's there to hold you up. Gospel humility is concerned with the welfare of others, caring for the comprehensive well-being of one another. Context helps us understand the need for humility in this church and even our church because people were bringing their baggage of the culture into the church. The culture of Philippi was thought humility was a bad thing, that it was negative. They thought uh, 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 that, 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 that it's all about your self-ambition, self-glory, vain glory, fleeting glory. Paul is pushing against the culture that is invading the church. He was helping them see how, how this mindset is toxic to the church. It's anti-gospel. It's anti-Jesus. We live in an individualistic society. I don't have to say it a thousand times. I think you already know that. People are so overly consumed with themselves. They focus on their own interest. Like MC Breed and Tupac used to say, I got to get mine. You got to get yours. Amen? Most of y'all don't know that song. My God, you know. <laughs> people's success is built on the backs of other people's failing, isn't it, y'all, in this society, in our culture? We don't want competition. We want the others to fail so we can succeed. That's how we think. Let me ask you a question. If your success is contingent on someone else failing, do you still want that success? Ask yourself that question again. If your success is contingent on somebody else failing, do you really want that success? Consider this. In order for you to be spiritually successful, you need to be helping other people grow. 
A person who is maturing in Christ sees that being mature is about helping others grow, not just about their own growth. Many come into the church only thinking of themselves. Some of us come with no intent of doing anything else but fill ourselves and look to our own benefit. You don't come here trying to help others grow. You come to leech, to get nourishment for yourself. That is a sure sign of immaturity. Many people want the type of church that is centered around their needs. People just jump from church to church typically because they're trying to get their needs met. People don't settle down and deal with the reality that church is not about meeting your needs. They try to, uh, uh, let, me, let me just say this. Some folks' self-centeredness is masquerading itself as a desire for biblical community. I want you all to catch what I just said. Some people's self-centeredness is masquerading itself as a desire for biblical community. You only want community to help you, not help others. You want what you want, but you don't realize your desires and your wants can destroy our community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. You spend so much time trying to get your way that you're killing the church. You're spending so much time focusing on your needs that it's killing other people. Church is not about you creating your own utopia. It's not about getting your way. It's about you becoming mature. We are to help one another grow up. Here's what I'm getting at. You need to care for others because it produces in you a gospel humility. Evidence of being spirit-filled and being transformed by the gospel is that you live in obedience, that your life models Christ's life. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God wants us to grow up. And I'm not talking about just numerically because I want people to grow. I want the church to grow numerically, yes. But he wants us to grow spiritually. Our text is not saying neglect yourself. But don't be consumed with yourself. Don't just do something for yourself, but for others. Maturity is about doing something to care for others. One thing as a pastor I'm starting to notice is that more and more people are starting to burn out quickly. People are growing weary and doing well. Some of this can be self-imposed. Let's be honest about this. Don't blame everybody around you. Blame yourself sometimes. Because you have unhealthy kind of uh, view of what service is all about. Your value, your, your, your worth, your acceptance comes from what you do rather than whose you are. Sometimes people overcommit and they overextend themselves because they're focused on trying to prove themselves. I want you to live free. I do. Christ has already given you the affirmation you need. Live in that affirmation. But here's the thing. Eight times out of ten, A lot of burnout comes from a majority of the church ministry is being carried by a minority of the people. When people don't care enough uh, to contribute and, and and carry their part of the weight of ministry, a sign that you are in this for yourself is that you're not concerned with the interests of others. To help prevent burnout, we, we are committed to doing something as, as a church collectively. And that's a commitment to simplicity. That means we're only going to do the things we can do or what we're called to do that fits within our mission and vision. We don't want to spread people thin. One way to see more fruit is doing less with more. We want to, we want to go deep with people. And, and that happens when we have a deep bench. And people are making use of every minute that they're getting. Hope y'all got that sports analogy. Amen or oh me. We are committed to being excellent by doing less, my friends. Here's what I'm saying. Even though we're committed to simplicity, that doesn't mean we need less people. 
More people are needed. We need to share the load of responsibility to give us all margin to rest, to be restored. Things happen in people's lives. Things come up. I'm not saying that it doesn't. People are going through drama. People are going through grief. People are going through sorrow. And we need to attend to their wounds like Richard did to me. We could have canceled service very easily, y'all. But Richard got up and said, I'm going to spend this two minutes to prepare a sermon. Amen. Let them use you. Amen. We want all our members to contribute. Membership does not mean your name is on the directory, but you are contributing to the mission and vision of this church. Contribute what you can. That's what I'm getting at. As much as time as you can, as much energy as you have, just do something. Part of your discipleship is actually just showing up and doing something, people. It's just showing up and actually contributing. Don't belittle your contributions. Don't think what you do and what you don't do doesn't impact the whole. There are other things that can consume us and keep us from serving and caring for others. People can be overwhelmed with suffering and struggles. Pain can limit your vision and it can prevent you from living the life God has called you to live. I'll be honest, it's hard to think of others when, when you are, your mind and your heart is clouded and consumed by your own suffering and struggles. If that describes you, I want, you to, I want to be honest. I spent the first part of the sermon saying that you need to be cared for. People need to minister to you. You need to heal. But I also want to say this in love, that your suffering does not exempt you from caring for other people. There's a temptation anytime you're grieving or in pain to be consumed with yourself. I've seen people become self-absorbed and so self-absorbed they go spiraling into depression. Why? Because they can't see the beauty beyond their struggles. The context of this book is that the church is suffering through persecution. Everyone is hurting. Paul urges them to care for one another. There is sickness. There is depression, anxiety, and trauma. And Paul wants them to care for each other's souls, to restore their vision, to see the beauty and the hope of Christ. To preserve unity so that they would live out God's purposes in the midst of their trials and suffering. They were to help others experience God's care so that they would live faithfully to God's purposes. If everyone is consumed with their suffering, there would be no room to help anybody heal. People help each other heal. We are part of each other's healing process. Let's, be, let's make a commitment to that. I don't want you to uh, know, think that I'm painting... People with broad strokes, right? I know people, uh, I know there's nuance. I know people take in suffering and grief differently. And so I want you to know, I know that people, there's no measure of grief. I don't want you to think that something happened to you and it's tertiary, it doesn't matter. But it is, if it's significant for you and if it's impacting you, I care. I care. And I'm not saying that this is one size fits all expectation of everybody to, 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 to what it looks like to care for each other. But, but God doesn't want your pain to be the focal point of your life. He doesn't want your struggles to be the narrative of your life. He wants you to, to show up for others. He doesn't want you to believe that you're too broken or, or too helpless or too weak to help others. He wants you to bring whatever you can, even if it's just a ministry of presence. Even if it's just you showing up. Man, I tell you sometimes when I look into the crowd, sometimes when I'm up here and I see people, I know their stories. I see them. I see their suffering. And, man, I am so encouraged, encouraged just the fact that they showed up. Their hands might not be lifted. 
They might be just in a place that it's really tough for them right now. But the fact that they showed up, man, it does a ministry even to me. And I want you to hear that from me personally. But also that means you can pray for others too. Sometimes it's just looking through our directory, looking at people, hitting people up, texting them, asking them how I can pray for you. To show people love. He wants you to show up for others. He doesn't want you to believe that you're too broken. Some of the most caring people that I've met in this church and the most compassionate people that I've experienced in the church literally have faced some of the deepest grief and traumas in their life. I've heard their stories, y'all. If you are metabolizing your pain with Christ, it should open your hearts and arms to embrace others who are suffering as well. That's what that means. It's not about doing a lot. It's about doing what you can to care for somebody else. I also see so many people being consumed with their lives, too. They're addicted to their ambition. So addicted they don't care for others. They're not bothered with other people's concerns. People are so consumed with their careers, with their own success. They're in grad school. They're doing whatever they can to make themselves a success. They're, they're trying to focus on their goals, focus on their ambition. And they don't know anybody in this church. They're not known well by anybody in this church. I've seen other people when they first get married, or some of y'all when y'all first get in relationships, isolate yourselves and focus on each other, and you forget that other people exist. Amen or oh me. I've seen it. I've witnessed it myself. You don't think there's room in your relationship for other people to care for other people, to love on other people, you're so consumed with one another. I've seen people disengage from our church community for the sake of busyness, right? And I call them up, man, Mo, man, Pastor Mom, I'm so busy. And what it signals to me, the focal point of your life has changed from Jesus to yourself. God has called, and I'm not saying in every situation, let me just make sure. It's not every situation. People are struggling, they're, they're hurting, and I know who those people are. But guess what? Some people just... They let busyness control their lives. They let success control their lives. Here's the thing. God has called you to serve others. Your plans and your dreams are not greater than God's plans and dreams for you. God has called you to participate in creating unity in the church. Let me ask a question. How are you doing that? How has God called you to do that? In what ways are you contributing to others and making that a priority in your life? God has called you to express his love by caring for one another. Our gospel witness is weakest when our love for each other is weak. Did you hear what I just said? Our gospel witness is weakest. Who wants to join people who don't love each other? Who wants a God where people are fighting and bickering? I'm not saying that, 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 that we, we can't have disagreements. I'm not saying that we can't, we can't uh, you know, uh, ruffle each other's feathers. What I'm saying is how many of us are really pursuing repair of those relationships? How many of us are letting bitterness reside in our hearts and not going to that person and, and having a loving conversation and saying, man, I'm hurt by you. Opening us up to maybe even some, to, to be vulnerable with somebody and not knowing what that's going to happen, what's going to happen with that. Our love can't be expressed on social media, y'all. We can't have theoretical love. It must be lived out. It must be expressed. It must be seen by the world. If someone hangs around our church for very long in our community, in our church, what are they going to witness, y'all? 
What are they going to see of us? Would they see that the gospel is and the Holy Spirit is at work, that it's changing our lives? Would they see loving relationships? Would they see that people are experiencing life-giving fellowship? Would they see people being transformed and, 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 and transparent with one another? Are they that people are experiencing care? Would they see that people are healing from decades of trauma? Would they see that people are doing everything they can to keep unity? Would they see love? Would they see a burning desire to make sure that Jesus is evident in our lives and he's made known? Could people say that these people are not in it for themselves, that they just bought a building and a community? They don't care about the homeless. They don't care about the housing market. That we're not just buying up properties for ourselves. Have y'all, man, my boy Jimmy put me here to this article about what's going on in the housing market. That people can't even buy homes anymore. What are we going to do as a church that's impacting our community? What are we called to do? Where's your passion? Where's your compassion, my church? Could people say that these people are benevolent, not self-seeking? Could they say these people love the west side of Atlanta? Listen. The reason why there needs to be intentional margin is so our witness for Jesus could be much stronger. That's the big idea. Life does not center around us, but around our witness for Jesus. We are, we are saved for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. I remember years ago, and I had sometimes when I was preparing this sermon, I really started to think about this, this book. I don't know why. It was a weird moment. I actually wasn't really big on pop culture Christianity back then at all. But this book was one of the most popular books that everybody was reading. It was called A Purpose-Driven Life, Amen or Oh Me. And everything became purpose-driven this, purpose-driven that. I got sick of it, boy, I'll tell you that. Y'all know my personality. Y'all know I just get tired of that type of stuff. But the first paragraph came to mind. I read the first paragraph. I ain't going to lie. I didn't read the whole book. I was like, man, ugh. I don't like to be like everybody else. That's just my personality. But as I read it again, it's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate. Let me read this to you. Is that the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Paul is trying to inspire the church with his truth that Christ is our motivation and he is our example. In verse 1, he points to Christ being our motivation for unity, but he is also our example for humility, right? Starting in verse 5, he uses, on to verse 9, he uses Christ going to the cross as our example. Intentional margin is about following Christ's example. When Paul asks the church to show humility, he appeals to Christ's example. Even though Christ is God, he did not look to his own interests, but came down and emptied himself. Jesus, for our sake, did not exercise his divine rights, but laid them aside. Became human, took the lowest position as a servant. He submitted himself to God and went to the cross for our sake. He died on our behalf. And because of his humility... God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. There is no other name in heaven and in earth by which man can be saved. There is no other name that gives the church its identity, its unity, and its purpose. Jesus has set the example you must follow. 
He is calling you to be willing to give up your rights for the sake of others, to lower yourself, to become servants for the benefit of other people. We live a cruciform life, a life where your exaltation is dying to yourself so that others can live. The greatest in the kingdom, in Jesus' words, are the ones who do what? Whoever humbles himself like a child. Whoever becomes vulnerable, whose love for the Father makes them follow him without question. Who has the capacity and the willingness to be open to love and to love others. Our lives are woven together. We are God's people. There is no longer I, but we. When you care for others, you're caring for yourself, my church. Loving the church is loving yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for even getting me through this sermon. God, you are good, good God. There's so much that needs to be said and left to be said, but God, allow the words that you've given me to, to preach to people's hearts even now. As we get prepared to sing songs, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would look to the left and look to the right and we would see one another, knowing that nobody is dispensable, nobody is expendable, and we all need one another. And we need to care for each other's needs. Father, remind us of how you care for our needs, how sacrificial you were on the cross. God, allow those people who are struggling with their own struggles and their grief and their sorrows, Lord, Allow them not to find contempt for themselves. Allow them to be patient with themselves, be kind to themselves, and even in this space. Allow them to, to know that, God, you are still working in them and through them. Allow them that they have worth and value and that they are loved by you and by your people. So, Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.